Well, good morning down at our Fredericksburg campus. I also want to say good morning to everyone here at our Stafford campus and for all of you joining us online, wherever you happen to be. We are so excited to spend this morning with you as we continue with week number two of our series titled Tipping Point. For those of you that maybe are joining us for the first time, what we are doing throughout this series is we are looking at the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, if you remember, is one of the 12 minor prophets, which didn't mean like he was like some short guy. It meant that his book was a shorter, more compact book compared to many of the other prophets, and there were 12 of them total. And all of those minor prophets occur towards the, the latter half of the Old Testament. And as we dive through this, we might remember that we've said Habakkuk is an interesting book because the word Habakkuk in the original language means to embrace or to wrestle. And that really is the journey that Habakkuk's going to take over three chapters. Is what we're going to see is Habakkuk is this guy who is wrestling with and embracing with God. It's this, this simultaneous, he can be wrestling and fighting and doubting and questioning, but also leaning in and embracing God. And Habakkuk had this moment, if you remember, the reason Habakkuk is such an interesting book is because Habakkuk had this moment where in the beginning of chapter one, he basically looks at the world around him and he says, These, this is what I believe about God. I believe that God is good, that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is faithful, that God is consistent, that God is a good judge and his justice prevails. And I believe this about God. But when I look at the world around me and what is happening to God's people and what's happening in Habakkuk's life, what he believes about God does not match what he sees and feels and experiences. And because of this, Habakkuk begins asking, God, where are you? Like, God, if, if I believe this, but I feel this, where are you? And the, the underlying question or fundamental problem that Habakkuk has with God is he says, when I look at the world around me, when I, when I see what I see, when I feel what I feel, but I believe what I believe, what it seems like is the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. Justice is not prevailing and wickedness is running amok. God, how can a good, loving God allow such unfairness? How can a God who cares about his people allow such unfairness? And we said that Habakkuk had, had, to, had hit this tipping point in his faith. And we showed you this example of what a tipping point might look like. And just for recap, we said that this is kind of our lives, and this was Habakkuk's life. You're kind of going through the motions, doing your thing, living your life, trying to be the best person you can be, whether you're a believer or not, you're, you're pursuing Jesus, whatever happens. And then some sort of event or circumstance or situation happens. And maybe that's something external in your area, something happens to you. Maybe it's a medical report. Maybe it's a thing with your career. Maybe it's a relationship that's soured, but something happens. And when that thing happens, whatever that situation or that circumstance, it causes this discrepancy, the same discrepancy that Habakkuk had, where what you believe about God does not match what you're feeling and seeing and experiencing. And it's a tipping point. And for many of us, when this tipping point occurs, our life can go in two different directions. 
And, and as much as we wish and desire that as we hit these tipping points where the things we believe don't match what we feel or see experience, we hope with everything in us that that moment becomes this, this catalytic, exponentially growing event that causes us to, to lean more into God, to, to deepen our faith, to trust him more. And that's great and all, but for the majority of us, for the most of us, it's the opposite. That event, that circumstance, that situation, that relationship, whatever it is, that tipping point moment, instead of driving us closer to God, leads us down into what I would call maybe something God is allowing in your life, a valley season, a season where God feels distant, a, a season where everything feels difficult and maybe it's painful and excruciating and uncomfortable and awkward. A season where you're, you're full of doubt and you're wondering and you're questioning and you're just wrestling with why is it that I, I feel this, I sense this, I experience this, but in my heart I believe something different and they don't match. And you find yourselves in this valley, in this dip, in this moment where you are full of doubt and pain and frustration. And this morning the question that I want to look at is what do we do when we find ourselves in these valley moments? in these dips, in these seasons of doubts where what we believe doesn't match what we feel and see and experience. Chapter one, just as a recap, if you remember, Habakkuk was basically saying, hey, when I look at the world around me, it seems like the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. It doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right. And Habakkuk went through this moment where he sort of questioned, he doubted, and he complained to God, he, he vocalized his frustration, and God answers him, if you remember. Now, the answer that God gave Habakkuk was not the answer he was longing for. If you remember what Habakkuk said was, why is it that it seems like your people are running crazy and that like strife is coming and violence is coming? And God says, Habakkuk, I hear you and I care about you. And not only do I love you, but I love my people and I love my nation, my chosen one, and I'm going to watch over them and protect them for all of eternity. And so here's my plan. And Habakkuk, you get this sense, he's like on the edge of his seat, like, oh, finally justice is coming. God's gonna make this fair. And what God says instead is, listen, Habakkuk, there's a neighboring nation known as the Babylonians. And what I'm gonna do is I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to empower them through my divine hand. And even though they are exponentially more wicked, exponentially more sinful, exponentially more morally corrupt than my own people. I am going to go through a season where I raise up the Babylonians and I'm going to use them to punish my people. And Habakkuk hears this and the way chapter two ends is in essence, and I'll summarize it, is Habakkuk being like, why? Like, why is that your plan, God? And it ends with him asking a question. Why, why, why? And then chapter two, verse one starts with this. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replies, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What do you do when you're in the midst of a season full of doubt, confusion, and pain? A valley where God feels distant, where what you believe doesn't match 
what you feel and you see. What do you do? First, Habakkuk says, you seek him. You seek him. Look, look back at verse one for me for a second. He says, I will stand at my what? All right, let's, we're gonna try this again. Like bold is like participation points. So Fredericksburg, I need you to participate online. Like say it so loud that people in your house who aren't watching are like, why are you talking to yourself? But here in Stafford as well. So he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the what? And I will look to see what he will say to me. So I love this because like Habakkuk is using military language. And so I think for our context, this makes amazing sense. Habakkuk is basically saying, listen, like I ended chapter one by asking a question. I said, why God? And so he says, now I'm going to stand at my watch. It's the idea of, a, of an ancient wall with a watchtower, a guard post. And he's basically saying, I'm going to climb the wall. I'm going to get into the guard tower and I'm going to stand there at my watch like a soldier watching over the field in front of him. And I'm going to look and I'm going to wait and I'm longingly going to expect to see the answer that you are going to provide for me, God. He says, I'm going to climb up on this guard tower and seek you, God. You seek him. Now, what do you do when you're in a valley season and God feels distant? You seek him. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you're probably like, that's it. That's like the thing, Adam. Like my three-year-old and you know, Sunday school could tell like, oh, you seek God, you love. Like I understand it's a very simplistic answer. But here's what else I know. Sometimes just because we know it and we believe it doesn't mean we apply it and we live it. I know there have been seasons in my life, and maybe you're much more spiritual than I am. I can think back to a couple years ago when my father passed away. Him and I's relationship, I've shared this story before, but basically him and I, when I became, uh, when I entered full-time ministry, our relationship pretty much severed for about 15 years. We didn't talk, we didn't interact. And I remember being in my office one day getting a phone call a couple years ago with somebody saying, hey, Adam, your dad just got in an accident and he's passed away. And I remember everything in me wishing, longing that I, I could just go back in time and like mend the relationship, fix it, make it, make it better. Like, but I couldn't. I found myself in this, this season where instead of seeking God, I didn't lean in. Right, like, isn't that what we do? Like, when, when it gets difficult, when it gets hard, when what we believe about a good God doesn't match with what we feel and experience and we see, instead of leaning in and seeking God, sometimes we kind of withdraw, we back up, we do all of these different things because it's easier. And maybe you're like me. Maybe instead of leaning into God, you did some of the things I did. Maybe the first thing is you isolate yourself. You say, you say a good, loving God, a God who says X, Y, and Z, but does A, B, and C, that's not a God I want to be around. So I'm going to sort of isolate myself from him. And maybe, maybe that's like you completely walking away from faith, right? You hear stories about this all the time where people are like, I experienced something, a tragedy, a painful moment, a loss. This happened in my life, and I just can't believe in a God who allows that to happen, so I'm out of here. But I think a more subtle danger is when we go through these valley moments, maybe we say, you know what, like I, I, I tried in the midst of my pain, in the midst of that valley, I came to church and they were singing a song about God's goodness and his faithfulness, and I could not sing that song. 
So I just kind of drifted away from attending. I isolated myself. Or maybe it's you isolate yourself from other people because you don't want to deal with the questions of them saying, man, how are you? How are you doing? How's your marriage? And so you're like, it's just easier to just isolate. Or maybe you pretend, right? Like you, you're going through a painful, difficult, valley, doubtful moment. And it is so much easier to just put on that face. You go to the grocery store and man, you're just trying to pick up some shredded cheese. And somebody's like, hey, how's, I heard, how's it going? You're like, man, God is so good. He's so great. Like we're just blessed. Like you pretend because it's easier to not let others know. Maybe you minimize. What I mean by minimize is we say, man, like, yeah, this is difficult and this is hard and God feels distant and it doesn't match what I believe, but you know what, like, my husband didn't cheat, it's not that bad, so like, it's not, it's not as bad as other people. Or yeah, like, I understand we got this health struggle and we're going through this, but you know what, like, at least the cancer didn't come back, it's not that bad, and so we, we, we compare ourselves to other people and we're able to minimize our valley to kind of shallow it out a little more so it doesn't feel as difficult and as hard because we're not as bad of place as other people around us. Or maybe one of the most dangerous, we over-spiritualize it. You know, we, we read in scripture that Jesus suffered and his followers will suffer. The disciples suffered. And as Christ followers, those of us that have professed to believe in him, when we're following Jesus and suffering comes and valleys come and difficulties come, instead of kind of being honest and open about those moments because we want to seem more mature in our faith and more spiritual than maybe we are, we say things like, well, this is just my cross to bear. This is just my difficult moment. And yes, I agree that as believers in Jesus, suffering will come, hardships will come, valleys will come, but that doesn't mean we over-spiritualize it and never admit the feelings and the emotions and the pain and the heartache that we feel in the midst of those. Habakkuk what you see in this beautiful story is Habakkuk doesn't isolate. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't over-spiritualize. Habakkuk leans in and wrestles with God. He embraces him. And it's a story of Habakkuk questioning and doubting. And instead of running away, instead of pretending it's not happening, instead of saying, well, at least we're not bad as the northern kingdom, or instead of minimizing saying this isn't or that, instead of over-spiritualizing it, he leans in and he says, God, I don't understand what you are doing and I want an explanation I will stand on this watch post and I will look to you until you answer maybe a, a, an interesting way to describe this would be to think about marriage my wife and I Kristen we've been married almost 19 years now and I'm sorry, ladies, but she's the most amazing woman in the entire world, and she's awesome, and she's so godly and spiritual and fun and crazy together and just all kinds of stuff. And, and if you were to ask her, like, in the beginning of our marriage, like, what if I told you, and what if I just said, man, in the beginning of our marriage, I was the most romantic guy in the world? 
Like I was like bringing flowers and I was like writing love notes. I was singing songs on a guitar and making poems. I was taking her to a date every, you know, three nights a week. We were going on date nights. We were at Applebee's sharing appetizers, whatever, whatever was going on. We were on all these date nights having so much fun and it was great and it was awesome and it was romantic. And then we had kids. <laughs> and then we got busy. And then I became a lead pastor. And then our kids had sports practice 19 times a week. And then they had homework for five hours a day. And we stopped dating. But what if I said the whole time, like, man, I'm, I'm telling her, I love you, babe. I love pursuing you. I love lavishing. I, I love you so much. You're so awesome. And I, I love pursuing you. But we never went on a date. I think eventually, ladies, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I think eventually she would have this tipping point where she would say, what you say doesn't match what you do. You, you say you love me and you pursue me and you wanna spend time with me, but your actions show otherwise. And, and, and if this happened and she came to you for advice, I would hope that every single one, regardless of what campus you were at, your advice wouldn't be, oh man, run away, isolate yourself from Adam, get away from him, don't be near him, divorce him, leave him, or pretend, you know what, like just pretend everything's okay, still put on a happy face and hang out with him, or minimize it, at least your husband's not doing what her husband's doing, or hers is doing, like it'll be okay, don't worry about it, or to over-spiritualize and say, honey, Kristen, this is just the cross you have to bear. We all have a thorn in our side. No, no, no. I would hope that every single one of you, if you were sitting down with coffee with her, you would say, Kristen, tell him. Seek him out and tell Adam your frustrations, your hurt, and your pain, and your fears. And that is the picture I want you to see in Habakkuk. When you are in a valley moment and it is painful and difficult and hard and you are doubting and you are confused and you're not sure if God is as good as he says he is, you don't run, you don't pretend, you don't minimize, you don't hide, you climb the watchtower, you stand at the post and you wait and you seek him. And in fact, most commentaries would say the, the way he's describing this in this moment is if Habakkuk climbs up on the watchtower and draws a circle around himself and says, God, I want an answer. I'm demanding an answer and I will not leave this circle until you give me an answer. I will seek you for the thing that I need. You seek him in your valley. You don't run. You don't hide. You don't pretend. You don't minimize. You seek him. Because there is no doubt, no frustration, no concern, no complaint that God won't answer. I would, I would argue that he probably wants to answer, but you need to seek him. Secondly, you wait. You wait. That's pretty awkward, right? That was like 10 seconds. I planned on 30, but I just couldn't make it. <laughs> if you guys were awkward, imagine being up here. People are like, is he, like, did he draw a blank? What's happening? 
We don't like to wait, do we? Like, we live in a world, and I'm not talking about the dangers of technology or any of that, like, the good, like, we just, we just live in a world where everything's instant, right? Like, we've traded our crock pots in for instant pots. We've traded our baking for convection baking. Like, it's just quicker. I saw a commercial recently, and the selling point of this food was it was French fries that cook in half the time of other fries. We just don't like to wait. And I think for many of us, sometimes waiting on God feels a lot like this video clip. Take a look. They're all slots? Are you saying that because he's a sloth, he can't be fast? Flash, flash, 100-yard dash. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, hmm. too. Hmm. Officer Judy Hap, CPD, how are you? I am doing fine. Well, what? Hang in there. Can I do? Well, I was hoping you could run a play. For you. Well, I was hoping you Today. could. Well, I was hoping you could run a plate for us. We are in a really big hurry. What's the plate? Two nine T number. Two nine T H D zero three. Two nine T H D zero three. H D zero three. D. Mm-hmm. Zero, three. Zero. Three! Hey, Flash, want to hear a joke? No! Sure. Okay. What do you call a three-humped camel? I don't know. Pregnant. <laughs> Priscilla. Oh, no! Yes? Flash? What do no. you call a three-humped camel uh, pregnant? Okay, great, we got it. Please jump. <laughs> you ever feel like the rabbit sometimes? You're like, God, it's difficult, it's hard, this is painful. And like, just come on, God, give me an A. Like, just move faster, God. <laughs> I love Habakkuk. He, he says this in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. So Habakkuk, right, he, he climbs up on this watchtower and he says, I'm not moving until you give me an answer, Lord. And the Lord replies. And I love the fact that the Lord replies. Like if, I just wonder in my mind if Habakkuk would have just stayed in his room pouting if the Lord would have replied. But more, was it the active, like the, the active faith it took for him to climb and step forward and to make this? And the Lord replies, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits what? An appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it what? Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay for some of you you are in the midst of a valley right now 
And I know this because I, over the last couple of weeks, after every single service and then through emails, and I, you're telling me about it. You're telling our staff about it. You're telling your friends about it. And here's what I know, it's painful. Your marriage is crumbling and you don't understand. Your kids are doing their own thing and you don't understand. Your career that you thought was gonna be X ended up being Y or Z and you don't understand. And it's difficult and it is hard. And I wish everything in me as your pastor. I wish everything in me I could stand up here and say, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying specifically that that valley, that season of doubt would disappear, but I'm not. I'm not praying that for you. Instead, what I'm praying for you is because I think sometimes we want the, like, like the valleys in our lives, these difficult, hard, painful moments to just end so that life can get back to normal. And we just wanna get through them as fast as we can like the rabbit going into the DMV. And we just wanna get over it and get things back to normal. But sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the valleys and the painful, difficult, doubt-filled moments that we have in our lives is God deliberately doing something that only he can do in that moment in and through us that he would not have done otherwise. And my prayer, if I prayed for you to get out of it, my fear is that you would miss what God is trying to teach you. Instead, my prayer for you is to endure. My prayer is for you to have patience. In the midst of your valley and your pain, when you don't know why it's happening, when you don't understand what God is doing, when none of it makes sense and you just wanna throw in the towel and you wanna walk away because you're done with this thing, you wait, you wait, because God is never late. His timing is always perfect. His delays are not denials. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it this, the famous author. He says, I am sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it's good for that person to wait. Maybe the season you are going through is a divinely orchestrated tool that God wants to use to grow you and to mature you. In the midst of our valleys, when we are doubting and wondering and question, we wait. We see this all throughout scripture, right? Example after example. You take the Old Testament by the guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph had this dream and Joseph kind of, the interpretation of the dream is Joseph, you're gonna be this position of authority and you're gonna have power over a bunch of people. And what happens to Joseph? His brothers beat him up and throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. And for the next 12 years, Joseph lives in a dungeon waiting for God's promise. You see this in the life of Moses, this guy that God calls and says, you're going to free my people, you're going to lead them to the promised land, and you're going to change the world with them, and you're going to do great things, and they get to the desert, and what happens? He says, you're going to wait, and you're going to wander around in circles for 40 years. You see this in the life of Paul in the New Testament. 
Paul's on the, the road to Damascus and he gets blinded and he gets thrown in jail and he gets kind of this, this Christ-filled moment where God in all of his grace changes him and Paul feels immediately feel called to go and preach the good news or the gospel of Jesus to all the nations, to all the people. And Paul says, I exist to preach. It's what I want to do. It's what I, the calling God has for my life. But don't miss this. Paul doesn't preach his first sermon for 13 years he has to wait. All throughout scripture, we see God's people waiting on him in difficult moments. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it less painful. It doesn't make it any fair, but it's what we do. We wait in our valleys. And so Habakkuk, back to his story, Habakkuk sees, he seeks God, right? He climbs up on this, this, this watchtower and he, he seeks God and he begins waiting. And God, they, they go through this interesting conversation where Habakkuk is like, God, what are you doing? And finally God answers him. And what's so funny is that when God answers him, God says, Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of my people. And he says, but here's the kicker. It'll be 70 years from now. And what's funny is, you know, 539 BC, the exact same thing that God prophesied would happen was gonna happen. The Babylonian empire fell and the Israelites became a nation again. It was this crazy filled moment. But for Habakkuk, he had to wait and trust that the promise of God would always come true even if he didn't know when or how. Which leads me to the third point. When you are in your valley, you trust. You trust. Habakkuk was full of trust in this moment. Take a look at, this is from Habakkuk chapter four, or verse two, verse four, chapter two. It says, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their what? The Old Testament language here, that word means strong confidence or trust. The idea is for Habakkuk, God says the righteous, those who are mine, they're gonna live by their strong confidence and trust in me. Oswald Chambers in his famous book says it this way. Faith is a deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at this time. It is a choice, a deliberate choice to trust that even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, you trust. And so the, the begs the question, like, what is Habakkuk even trusting in this moment? Like, what, what, is, what is this anchor that's so easy for him to latch onto, to trust, that even when he doesn't feel him, or like, it's just gonna happen, like, what does he trust in this moment? And he tells us in chapter two, verse 20, he says this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, remember, for the Jewish people, the temple was the place of authority. It was the place of power where God resided. And so in essence, what Habakkuk is saying is he's saying, the Lord is still in control. The Lord is still in power. What do you do when you are in a season of doubt? You seek him, you wait for him, and with everything in you, you continue to trust God's goodness because he is in his temple. Even though you are upset, even though you are angry, even though you are confused and frustrated and disappointed and impatient, you remember who God is, that he is still in charge, and he is good. 
He is righteous. He is true. He is faithful. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is ever-present. And the, while the world may seem like it's upside down in your life, you remember that when God is on his throne, everything is still right side up. You remember and you believe that he is God and you are not. His timing is perfect and not your timing. His plan is best, not your plan. What that means is when it feels like your marriage is crumbling and falling apart, you believe and trust that God is still on his throne. He is still in his temple. When your kids are disobedient and they're doing their own thing and you are wondering, how will we ever get through this? You trust and believe that he is on his temple. He is in his throne and he is there. When it seems like your career is failing and everything you thought that would happen is not happening, you trust and you believe that even when you don't feel it, that he is still in control because he is God and you are not. And he is good. And he is good. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for characters like Habakkuk, for fallen, broken men who have the same fallen, broken characters as us. God, I pray in this moment right now as we're continuing in our worship time, maybe you're here this morning and if you were being really honest, your, your whole life, everything about it, has just been you wrestling. It's you wrestling for control, you wrestling for your own desires, for your own decisions, for your own wants and your own needs. It's you wrestling against God to be in control, to be your own God. And let me just tell you right now this morning that you make a really, really bad God. You make a really bad king, a really bad Lord, because you are selfish at your core. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to earth to die in your place so that your pride, your selfishness could disappear and you could surrender and live a life with him, for him, for all of eternity. This morning, stop wrestling. If you've been running from God, maybe this morning you need to surrender your life to him for the first time. Just in this moment at all of our campuses, if you wanna make that decision, the biggest decision you will ever make in your life, would you just raise your hand boldly right where you are? Jesus, I surrender to you. If you raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer out loud with me. Father, I am a sinner. I need your love. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Be my king and my Lord. Today I turn, I run, I repent to you for salvation. Amen.